Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. Just some of the sounds as Queen Elizabeth II's coffin makes its way, or made its way, I should say, at Windsor Castle, the uh, services at Westminster Abbey, the carriage used to carry her, her coffin, the same one that carried her father, and then to Windsor Castle. And to her final destination, Tony Katz. Tony Katz, today, good to be with you. I, I, it, it's, I'd, I'd wanted to cover parts of it all day, just because. I mean, it's, it's the, it is the truly now the end and the and the reign of, of uh, King Charles, uh, which began on September the eighth, really begins, uh, in in earnest. Uh, now and and so much taking a look at this, and everything's been about Harry and. Megan and and uh, what does Kate Middleton say? I, I I don't think we actually care as much as they're telling us. We're supposed to care about the thing, and certainly it isn't a place where I live and breathe. If you ask me if I feel bad for for Prince Harry at all, uh, the the answer is um absolutely not. Uh, Prince Harry, uh, you know he 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 did his thing. He he uh decided this he decided that his answer was i'm gonna give up the royal family okay nobody consulted me nobody consulted me so you know i'm i have nothing to say about it he's upset that he can't wear his military uh uniform to the funeral of his grandmother well he shouldn't have quit that's the end of that nobody has to feel for him you make decisions, you live with the decisions. Like you should live with the decision of paying off your student loan debt if you took the debt. Which, however, uh, is something that Joe Biden doesn't want you to do. But as we learned from that 60 Minutes nonsense interview, Joe Biden lies through his teeth. COVID is over? Wow, okay. If COVID's over, how in the world do you explain using some level of emergency powers to say people don't have to pay back their student loans? If you haven't caught that, I'll, I'll get into it. I'll get into it in, in a bit. But man, the immigration story is everything. The immigration story is everything. To see the level to which people have started to understand because Ron DeSantis sent illegal immigrants to Martha's Vineyard and Greg Abbott has sent illegal immigrants to D.C. And Doug Ducey, the governor of, of Arizona, has sent uh, illegal immigrants elsewhere. This is America's problem. Even the mayor of El Paso, a Democrat, has stated they're not coming to El Paso. They're coming to America. Something we said first, guys. We said it. We said it before other people were thinking it. That's kind of what we do. That it was the argument, the one that the left, no matter how hard they try, cannot escape from. 
Of course, they've decided that the answer is just to continue to call people uh, fascists. It's like I was talking about with that Steve Schmidt uh, tweet. Steve Schmidt, a guy who used to be on the McCain campaign, and then he's uh, he's never Trump, and he's been all over MSNBC. He's one of the Project Lincoln losers. Putting out a tweet, I'm going to say something. There's no hyperbole attached to it. I mean it. Every word. Anyone who thinks Ron DeSantis wouldn't kill his political opponents, given the chance, doesn't understand who he is. Oh, okay. So that with the New York Times story, we're already getting into uh, the idea of uh, how uh, DeSantis is worse than Trump. The New York Times put out the story that Trump is, uh, DeSantis is like Trump, but Trump has, you know, he's eccentric and he has some soft edges. Trump has soft edges. Oh, lovely then. Remember, Trump is Hitler, and Mike Pence was worse, and now Ron DeSantis is worse. This is who they are. This is what they do. Goodness gracious. But it's so easy to see on this immigration conversation that the border is a failure, that Biden is responsible And now you've got the mayor of D.C. and you've got the mayor of Chicago saying we need federal help. Eric Adams is trying, he's the mayor of New York, trying to split the baby. No, no, no. You see, it's it's Republicans' fault. Democrats are doing all the right things. Blah, blah, blah. You need to secure the border. It is obvious and it is clear. Obvious and clear. And uh, I'll tell you what, uh, Ted Cruz did 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 the full scorched earth. He was on he was on Fox the other day. It was, I think it was yeah, I think it was Fox. I think it was. Ah, it doesn't matter. It was still good. Yeah, I got to say, today has really illustrated what screaming hypocrites the Democrats are, the entire corrupt corporate media. They don't believe a word they said. Every word out of their mouth is a complete and utter lie. You know, the Democrats did not think it was a humanitarian crisis when we pulled over 50 bodies and body bags out of a truck in Texas of illegal immigrants who died because the smugglers let them die of heat exposure. And yet suddenly, 50 illegal immigrants show up in lily white Martha's Vineyard where rich liberals and billionaires sip Chardonnay and it is it is World War three. They lose their stuff all over the place. And it just shows what utter nonsense it was. You know, Sean, I'm reminded, as you know, a year ago, I introduced legislation calling for illegal immigrants to be sent to wealthy liberal enclaves like Martha's Vineyard, like Nantucket, like Palo Alto, uh, like Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, where, where Joe Biden vacations. And it was fascinating. You know, the response, the leadership of Martha's Vineyard said they would love it. In fact, I want to read the response because it's... it's Let me hold up on that just a second from Ted Cruz. Clearly, he was on with Hannity over there on Fox. Martha's Vineyard... You should know, and I think Ted Cruz explains this well, or, or he, he will get into it, lies. Martha's Vineyard says, oh, we, we accept, we welcome, we love, and the minute they got 50 people, get them out of here, we can't take it, we can't handle it. Put them on buses and send them to a, to, to, was it to a naval base? 
They couldn't handle 50 people. Barack Obama couldn't open his house. You know, that huge, huge palace of a home he has. Couldn't do it. It needs to be uh, said with all levels of, of, of clarity that the people on Martha's Vineyard are frauds. So are the people who claim to be loving and accepting. It's all virtue signaling. I'm not interested in, in, in even trying to find, uh, search for where their good spot is. Where's their decency? What decency? You flat out lied. You claimed to be about something, and the minute you were put to it, you, you turned tail and ran. That's the whole story. The beginning and the end of the story. And so now I'm not interested in, in treating these people well. I'm interested in them being ashamed in who they are. I'm interested in all of us really knowing that when they say, oh, we believe this and oh, we believe that, it is a lie. Back to Senator Cruz. It's too perfect not, not to revisit. Dukes County Commissioner Keith Chattanover said the following, I would love Martha's Vineyard to become a haven for new immigrants in this country. But Senator Cruz has no idea what he's talking about regarding a border crisis. That's what he said last year, that he would love oh. Martha's Vineyard to become a haven. Now, with just 50, they've lost it. And what did they do within 24 hours? These leftist hypocrites load them on buses and deported them out of there. I mean, it's, it's, it's brutal, but it's factual, and it matters so much because you and I are often subject to their Karen-like rantings. They believe they know better. They believe they know more. They believe that they are the good and the decent. But of course, that's not the case. We are playing right now very much in, in, in the scope of Alinsky. And part of Saul Alinsky's rules for radicals is you have to make sure that your opponent has to live up to their standards. Have you never heard uh, that before? Very, very important stuff. Remember, I'm not a fan of Saul Alinsky. I think, I think uh, scumbaggery is the name. But you have to make them live up to their rules. You have to do it. Make the enemy live up to its own book of rules. That's why they have to be held to account. So everybody knows that they are indeed liars when they don't. That they have failed when they don't. Every time someone says we're a sanctuary city, I will now see it as nothing but virtue signaling. They don't mean it. They don't believe it. They don't want it. And they should have to live up to it. Vir uh, sanctuary city, that's where we send the next thousand. Or we could do something about the border. I mean, totally, totally your choice. More coming up. I'm Tony Katz. The future is tech. Well, the future has to be a plethora of things for the state of Indiana to thrive. We have $491 million of investment happening at the Marion County plant. And I should say the Marion, Indiana plant of General Motors. And then we've got the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Commerce paying a visit to Purdue because, well, you need to make chips, too. Tony Katz, good to be with you. Gary Dick joins us right now from InsideIndianaBusiness.com on Twitter 
at IIB. You had uh, Secretary Blinken. You had Secretary Raimondo, uh, Gina Raimondo, the Secretary of Commerce, visiting with Mitch Daniels, with Senator Todd Young, with Governor Holcomb. Uh, They're at Purdue University because there's this idea that through the CHIPS Act, which has gotten a lot of mixed reviews in terms of its its efficacy in dealing with China, but there is going to be the creation of tech hubs around the country. Purdue wants to be one of those hubs. What was the event like? What did you learn? Well, it, it was a uh, you know kind of a typical visit, a tour of uh, the uh, the tech facilities, the Burke Nanotechnology Center uh, at Purdue, which is uh, is one of the uh, tops uh, in the country, tops in the world, really. As you look at uh, you know technology and innovation in the microchip and microelectronics uh, sector, Purdue it's in Purdue's sweet spot, uh, the microchip uh, area, that sector of the economy. Been doing a lot of things on a, on a global basis for a long time. So the trip was really kind of a fact-finding mission, but I asked Mitch Daniels on the show this weekend, is there any more to read into it than that? Uh, was this trip uh, about more than just uh, you know kicking the tires, if you will? And he said, quote, there is a lot more to read into it. Uh, he believes, uh, and he believes the secretaries who visited uh, there believe that Purdue can play a key role, and Indiana as well, and become one of these 20 tech hubs you talked about as part of the CHIPS Act. And with that would come investment in jobs. And Purdue's already seen investment in the sector. We see MediaTek, a huge chip maker from uh, uh, South Korea that has established its first uh, relationship with a U.S. university at uh, Purdue Skywater Technology, Minnesota-based company, uh, investing nearly $2 billion uh, in a new uh, research and development manufacturing facility at Purdue. So Purdue's already seeing it. The feeling is there could be a lot more down the road. One of the other uh, stories in, in, in a world, you know, that we want to see an increase in, uh, you have the story that Ruoff, the mortgage company, uh, engaging staff reductions because of these rising interest rates. What are you hearing about the fact that a 30-year fix is now over 6%? Where do we think this housing market is going, and how does this affect, as you're hearing about it, how does this affect the state? Well, you, you know, I think everyone's looking for forward-looking indicators. As you know, are, are we headed toward, uh, as FedEx talked about uh, last week, uh, talked about cutting back uh, in a number of areas and the, the risk of a potential global uh, recession. Uh, rates have gone up. I think they're around 6% now, which historically aren't that bad, but certainly in recent times uh, uh, much higher than they have been. And that's caused a decrease in demand. That's what the, the, the situation is at Ruoff, a Wayne-based company that has grown substantially over the last number of years uh, in a big way, putting a new headquarters in up in, uh, in Fort Wayne as well. Uh, but they're cutting back, saying demand is down. They anticipate that will continue for some period of time, so they're making that move. So I think everyone's trying to read the tea leaves as to what's, uh, you know, what's happening. Uh, I think there is. Uh, we are seeing a, a, a decrease in demand because rates have, have inched up. We'll see where things go. Talking to Gary Dick from InsideIndianaBusiness.com on uh, Twitter at IIB. Uh, uh, you know, I, I brought up earlier that uh, that investment, uh, General Motors, the $491 million. Uh, let, let's be clear. That's massive because in a world where they're readjusting and reconfiguring for the electric car world, which, uh, whether I agree with it or not, is inconsequential. It's possible that Marion, the Marion plant, could have been um, on the chopping block. Instead, yep. it seems like it's going to be around for a while. 
Yeah, no question about it, Tony. You hit the, the nail on the head. This was a huge deal. Now, remember, no jobs, no new jobs associated with this. But excuse me, nearly a half billion dollars in investment is a huge vote of confidence. As you say, as this electrification of the auto industry continues, it's happening whether folks uh, agree with it or not or like it or not. It is happening. We're seeing big, big investment by the automakers. F- nearly $500 million into Marion is a huge plus for that community, a plant that has been around for more than six decades uh, in that community. been a big driver of, uh, of jobs and investment for many, many years. But it's an old line plant, and you know certainly they could have uh, gone elsewhere for this investment. But you look from the electrification standpoint, electric vehicles, and what's happening around the state. We see Stellantis and Kokomo investing a couple of billion dollars uh, there and adding hundreds and hundreds of jobs in that community. Uh, where you look in South Bend and that area, and the potential for a GM joint venture going in there. So we're seeing tons of investment. Uh, Indiana is trying to get its fair share, perhaps more than its fair share, uh, as that uh, goes along. Before I, I let you go, I want to congratulate you on the new house purchase. The Dahan estate has been sold for $14.5 million. Congratulations to Gary Dick. Getting himself well, a new place uh, there, 41,762 uh, square feet, but oddly enough, only two bathrooms, and it's it's all yours, Gary Dick. Congratulations. <laughs> Well, I was trying to keep that keep that tamp down, Tony, but uh, you know, I, I, I'm I'm happy. We just needed a little more space. Right. This is the Dahan Estate, Crystal Dahan, who passed away a few years ago, uh, selling for 14.5 million. Uh, your sister there at the IBJ having the story. There, this is was purchased by a retailer, the same people um, who used to operate Restoration Hardware. And they're putting in a, a home furnishing showroom, interior design gallery, a restaurant, and a wine bar, and an outdoor furniture gallery. Um, this is a, I don't know if this is fascinating or frightening in that who would have thought this would be this open to the public? Uh, exactly. And uh, I'm interested to see how this plays out because when I first heard about that, uh, some time ago, that was going to happen. Uh, I, I thought that was an interesting use, or will be an interesting use of that property, which is is amazing, is unbelievable. But to to uh, to open that up uh, will be interesting to see how that uh, you know how that plays uh, here in the community. I mean, it, the 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 idea of being able to to sit out overlooking the lake and everything else, very very cool. But there are other residences in there, aren't there? Uh-huh. In that yeah, whole area. In that area, yeah, in that area. But it, it's a massive property, obviously a massive home uh, as well. Uh, I, I can't I can't wait to see what the, this vision is and how they're going to uh, really utilize all that property. Gary Dick, he's from InsideIndianaBusiness.com. On Twitter, at IIB, I appreciate you taking the time. More coming up. Keep it here. I'm Tony Katz. Nothing. The Colts lose to the Jaguars in a performance that is listless, in a performance that makes you question Matt Ryan is this great quarterback. This offensive line, how many sacks were given up? Wait, do I have do I have that number? Oh, he was sacked five times was Matt Ryan. Matt Ryan was sacked so many times, he thinks his name is Joe Burrows. Tony Katz, 93 WIBC. Good morning. JMV joins us 
from 93.5107.5 The Fan, 3 to 6 p.m. Every Monday through Friday. And uh, I texted you yesterday, and I said, who gets fired? That was my question. It's my question today. Is anybody going to get fired from this organization? Well, I don't think it's going to be the head coach just yet. And we talked last week, Tony, if you remember as well, and I had mentioned that what what a game like this would do is an embarrassment to everybody, including the owner, who doesn't want to be embarrassed. And this this will start the ball rolling to have Jim Irsay possibly do something that he has never done before, and that is part ways with a head coach during the season. And, And here it is. It took a 24 nothing embarrassment like that. Okay, so you're 0-1-1. One, one. You have Kansas City in the home opener coming in on Saturday, and then you have Tennessee following that at Lucas Oil Stadium. But this team, Tony, is 0-3-1 as you enter October or getting into the early stages of October. Then, to me, that sets a precedent of something that Jim Irsay ends up doing that he's never done before. I don't think he's going to do it this week. Um, I would doubt it, but that doesn't mean that much like last week we saw with Rodrigo Blankenship, he wasn't so much scapegoated because he deserved it. He missed a kick, kicked a couple out of bounds. Uh, there was no uh, no scapegoating there, but it was an easy call to make if you wanted to make a change after a disappointing week one. You watch this offensive line, Tony, that is the highest-paid offensive line in the NFL that couldn't protect you yesterday. Uh, somebody's going to fall on that particular sword, and you may look for Chris Strasser, the guy that coaches up the offensive line. He may end up being that type of scapegoat if uh, something does occur. I just don't think at this point in time Tony is going to be the head coach. It was not lost on a lot of people that this offensive line is is uh, you know held in high esteem and the huge money for for Quentin Nelson, the love for for Ryan Kelly, and it was an absolute disaster. How much of that is on the line, and how much of the fact of that is on the fact that Matt Ryan doesn't seem to really have a receiving core he can throw to? No, this, this is all this is Chris Ballard's mess right here. If you want to call this a mess, which is exactly how it looked yesterday. And here's what's kind of the scary point that I made last night on 59 is you got me and you that watch, you got fans out there, average fans, and we see this whole issue at wide receiver. We have seen the kicking issue in training camp. You know, we have seen the building of the team and wondering why you give $20 million per to a left guard who is not an essential position player. You know, why you don't high hold and high esteem the wide receiver position and put more stock into it. We, we have seen this, yet Chris Ballard has it, and I think that's the most frightening point. And then add to this, too. What you saw yesterday was not just a blip on the radar to me. What you saw yesterday was Jacksonville that's finally gotten serious, got themselves a real coach, not a clown, who's a former Super Bowl champion. And they, to me, dominated the Colts in every facet of the game. They just looked like a better built organization right now and there is no way in this world chris ballard is not accountable right along with frank reich it just in terms of if something were to happen if jim ursay were to just say enough is enough and make a change ballard's not going to be on that list first it's going to be frank reich or maybe in this case you know the offensive line coach but ballard is as accountable for where this team is and how it looked yesterday as anybody out there Talking to JMV from 93.5, The Fan. Uh, let's get into the territory that nobody likes to talk about. Um, is it possible that Jim Mercer just doesn't know how to hire to actually build a team? Uh, I, I, listen, I, 
here's what happened last time with Frank Reich. Are you talking about in particular Frank Reich? I'm Frank talking Reich about the fact that there's been a very, very long run of not being able to accomplish what was set out to be accomplished. Yeah. The idea that Andrew Luck's career was cut short. You can talk about his retirement, but literally getting your, your, your spleen cut in half might, might very well lead you down a road because he wasn't protected. A whole series of people who we, we talk big, but in the end, it's not there. Exactly how much of this is on the feet of Jim Irsay? No, I mean, it is because he's had this belief. I mean, he's had this belief. He has this trust in, in Chris Ballard and Frank Reich. If you remember, Tony, going back to the whole Josh McDaniels fiasco when Chris Ballard hired him, and then in the 11th hour, he decided he didn't want to take it. Frank Reich was not in his top eight head coaching possibilities, not in his top eight. And essentially what happened back then was Bill Polian, the former general manager and team president here, Tony Dungy, the former head coach, Peyton Manning, all said, hey, all right, you need a coach right now. You're kind of left uh, a little bit in the lurch. Here's a guy. And they prompted Jim Irsay, more than really anybody else at all, to go with, with Frank Reich. But, yeah, I mean, Jim has believed and believed and believed. And I know that he still sits up in Carmel right now, starting his new week in belief of this group. Problem is, this whole thing's not coming together. With Chris Ballard, the pieces aren't fitting right now. And with Frank Reich, you can make the argument that his guys have, have tuned him out. I will make this argument, Tony. I think, unfortunately, a lot of this group takes on the image of their head coach. And if you heard Shaquille Leonard last week, he didn't play yesterday, obviously. But if you heard him last week suggest that Jacksonville was paraphrasing here, just another game, right? It wasn't just another game because they hadn't won on the road against the Jacksonville team since 2014. You started out with two road divisional games. It wasn't just another game. They got clowned in Jacksonville to bounce them out of the postseason as the players laughed and joked and created misery for the Colts. It wasn't just another game. And, Tony, to me, that is the atmosphere, the culture that has been created by the head coach, and that is not playing well. And, unfortunately, we see the outcome of that. It looked like an incredibly soft, listless, uninspired performance. And, to me, that takes on the image of what we see from Frank Reich as the head coach of the state. Before I let you go, let's talk about Matt Ryan. Um, he's a a guy who has a long history. The Colts want to brag about the fact that he's now over 60,000 yards uh, for his career, uh, but he, he's 0-1-1 in his start uh, as a Colt, and he looks... This this is me, right? Uh, let's, let's argue I'm the ultimate outsider looking in on, on this. Um, he looks flustered in the pocket. Uh, he looks flustered when he's coming to the line. Is this about not having a familiarity with the playbook at his stage of the career, or is there something else going on? No, it, it is a quarterback that's 37 years old that needs a great deal of help and was promised, I'm sure, a great deal of help from an offensive line that needs help with weapons at wide receiver, and Tony, he doesn't have it right now. In the pass-catching department, and when you have a failure, and I mean a massive failure, Tony, we're talking about the highest-paid group on offensive line in the NFL with the Colts. The third highest paid group is that defensive line. They have done virtually nothing so far. Again, at the feet of Chris Ballard. But you're looking at a 37-year-old quarterback that needs help around him not to look washed up. Hence, getting sacked five times yesterday, throwing three interceptions like that, being on the run the entire time. He looks washed up.
that's just the whole dynamic of how this team concept looks, and that's how he looks right now. Not like a great piece. And that, again, goes back to Reich Ballard, and I'm saying uh, Jim Irsay. I mean, how how soon before it's the Nick Foles era, or really, okay, let's really build up Sam Ellinger and uh, Sellinger, and uh, let's get this going. Well, there's one thing that's going to happen. They're going to have to determine. They're going to have to do this anyway, Tony. They're going to have to go. I know I like Ellinger, and that's that's great. I know he's active on the roster, but he's inactive during games. Um, they're going to have to go out and get serious about drafting. There are a lot of quarterbacks coming out of college this year. They're going to have to get serious about drafting a high-level quarterback. They were going to have to do that anyway, full disclosure. They weren't going to wait on it. At least I didn't think so. It's not like Chris Ballard believes in what I say. Maybe he should sometimes, considering the circumstances. But they were going to have to draft a quarterback, their future quarterback, to me, anyway. So that doesn't really matter. It's just going to be the path in which, Tony, they take to get there. And I know Colts fans, and I know the Colts didn't want to see this path, but at 0-1-1, this is what it looks like right now with both Kansas City and Tennessee on the horizon. And Matt Ryan told me back in the spring he thought he could give them at least two-plus more years. Uh, to me, yesterday, he got hurt at the end of the game. It didn't look like he's going to be able to give them two-plus more games, much less, less more years. So they were going to have to do it anyway, but this may expedite the process without question right here. And it may do it just because – I don't know if Ryan's going to survive this, as right. you saw yesterday when he got injured. His name is JMV. He does the sports stuff over there on The Fan, 93.5, 107.5, The Fan, from 3 to 6 p.m. Uh, he, we also do some racing coverage together on uh, for the Indy 500. It's a good time had uh, by all. I've taught him a lot. I really, really have JMV. I appreciate you. More coming up. I'm Tony Katz. People are shocked by their grocery bills. What can you do better and faster? Well, first of all, let's put this in perspective. Inflation rate month to month was just uh, 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 just an inch, hardly at all. You're not arguing that 8.3 is good news. No, I'm not saying it is good news, but it was 8.2 or 8.2 before. I mean, it's not, you're, I, mean, I can make it sound like all of a sudden, my God, it went to 8.2%. It's, been, it's the highest inflation rate, Mr. President, in 40 years. I got that, but guess what we are? We're in a position where, for the last several months, it hasn't spiked. He actually did this on 60 Minutes. That was Scott Pelley doing the interview. Not a good interview at all. 8.2 to 8.2. No, 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 no. It was 9.1, then 8.5, then 8.3 in the year over year. But in the month of August, inflation went up, and the Consumer Price Index, the core went up 0.6% when it was scheduled to go up 0.3. Inflation went up 0.1 when it was supposed to go down 0.1. So it was supposed to go down 0.1 and went up 0.1. So everything was double to the the bad side of what you thought. And with all those gas price reductions that you and Chief of Staff Ron Klain are cheering, inflation still went up. Because the price of food, the price of energy, the price of medical, the price of housing. And he's on 60 Minutes in this insane, it was insane. Who let him do this? And he's telling you, ah, inflation's fine. It is just barely, it's been basically even. And in the meantime, we created all these jobs and, and prices have, have gone up, but they've come down for energy. The fact is that we've created 10 million new jobs. 
we're in a sense we came to office. We're in a situation where we, the unemployment rate is about 3.7 percent, one of the lowest in history. We're in a situation where manufacturing is coming back to the United States in a big way. And look down the road. We have massive investments being made in computer chips and, and employment. So, I, look, this is a process. This if you can't recognize that people are having a serious problem figuring out whether they're going to feed their families or heat their house, dear Lord, you are unserious. Unserious. And we should also be clear that no, you have not created any jobs whatsoever. People going back to work because you told them they couldn't go to work because the pandemic is not job creation. Yet here you are walking through, I guess this is a Detroit auto show. Uh, you're there with Scott Pelley, you're walking around and then it's like, it's so casual. Oh yeah, COVID over. Mr. President, first Detroit auto show in three years. Yeah. Is the pandemic over? The pandemic is over. We still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. Uh, it's, but the pandemic is over. If you notice, no one's wearing masks. Everybody seems to be in pretty good shape. And so I think it's changing, and I think this is a perfect example of it. COVID is over? Why wasn't I notified? Oh, wait, I've been acting like COVID is over for a year now. For a year, we've been saying, let's get back to it. For a year, it's been get our kids back in schools. For a year, it's been get our businesses open again. For a year, it's been, hey, houses of worship, why aren't you letting people in to pray? Shame on every church, every synagogue, and every mosque that did not have in-person services. Shame. You let the government keep you from the practice of your religion? Nonsense. It's been a year, and the CDC engaged in nothing but fear-mongering and changing the rules. We have been in this place for a year, and we were fighting the teachers' unions that still wanted students to be in masks because teachers were afraid or something. And when parents spoke up, they were nothing more than domestic terrorists. It's, it's over? And you tell us in an interview with Scott Pelley on CBS? No grand statement. Let me ask, if, if I ask Dr. Fauci, will, will he tell me that COVID is over? If I ask Dr. Anthony Fauci, will he tell me COVID is over or will he be like, over? Over? Did you say over? Nothing is over until we decide it is. Was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? That, to me, is Fauci. That's what we're going to hear. This interview was flat out out of control. And if those other two things weren't it, uh, here you go. Sir, are you committed to running again? Or are there certain conditions that have to be right? Look, if I were to say to you, I'm running again, all of a sudden, a whole range of things come into play that I have uh, requirements I have to change and move and do. In terms of election In laws. In terms of election laws. And it's much too early to make that kind of decision. I'm a great respecter of fate. And so what I'm doing is I'm doing my job. I'm going to do that job. And within the time frame that makes sense after this next election cycle here, going into next year, make a judgment of what to do. You say that it's much too early to make that decision. 
I take it the decision has not been made in your own head. Look, my intention, as I said to begin with, is that I would run again, but it's just an intention. But is it a firm decision that I run again? That remains to be seen. Sir. We had heard from this administration that he was running again. We had heard that he was absolutely going to do it. We heard that he was upset that other people were questioning this. They wouldn't back him up on it. They weren't sure if they were going to support him. This is what we were already told by the administration. And now all of a sudden, we don't know. Maybe, maybe not. What an interview. Now, in a normal world, the White House would be spinning, trying to figure out how they're going to answer these questions. All of it. They'd be trying to do all of it, figuring out how they're going to get this handled. But in a world where you could just say, well, you know, the other side's a bunch of fascists. I don't know what they're going to do. I have no, I have no idea what, the, what in the world they're, they're going to do, if they're going to have to deal with this, because this should be two weeks of them trying to explain themselves. Find everything at TonyCats.locals.com. Tomorrow, everyone, take care.